Welcome to Stories from the Pitch, a podcast dedicated to creating a living oral history about street performing and some of the crazy characters who populate this world. I'm Magic Brown, your host for this growing collection of interviews. In this episode, Kiwi performer and all-around goofball, Kim Potter, sat down with fellow Kiwi, Fergus Aitken, a.k.a. Mr. Fungus. Now, for those of you who may be unfamiliar with him, in Kim's words, he was one of the more publicly visible performers on the scene in New Zealand, along with acts like the Shenanigan Brothers, John Davey, also known as Mr. Moon, Hefty Jeff, and the first wave of UK imports, among them Dave Sheridan, Nick Nicholas, and Richard Handley. In 1992, he coordinated the Lotto World Buskers Festival, which was part of the International Festival of the Arts in Wellington. Through that and a few other festivals in Wellington and around the country, he became and remains one of the first performers that Joe Public was aware of by name. He also taught mime and movement consistently throughout New Zealand over the last 30 years, including at Circo Arts in Christchurch, as well as numerous juggling and circus festivals. So several generations have taken the basics from him and run with them. The chops he learned at Covent Garden and brought home in New Zealand have been disseminated through several generations of New Zealand performers. Thank you, Kim, for that. So there you have it. And now, on to the interview. Take it away, Mr. Potter. Right, so we are here at Bat's Theatre in Wellington City, courtesy of Kristen Burns, Finance and Events Manager, who has let us come in here because we asked. Uh, and this is Kim Potter talking with Fergus Aiken, Mr. Fungus. Hmm, sometimes about, that's what I'm called. Um, so, uh, you are a... A bunch of things. Why don't you tell? Describe. Well, I guess. Like, what do you? <coughs> so what do you do? I, Fergus Aitken, am a performer and teacher of uh, physical theatre and mime is kind of my speciality. Um, I have, as you mentioned, I have a character, Mr. Fungus, that uh, is now. Who has been happening for around thirty-two years? Uh, yeah, and I do visual theatre and comedy, and uh, yeah, in relation to this podcast, I've done many, many years of being a street performer, um, something which I kind of probably more dabble in nowadays, rather than as a a frequent, constant kind of mode of being, yeah. Is I, that what, what came first? Like, what, what was the... Uh... Definitely the egg, as far as I know. Yeah. I don't know much. But in terms of... Uh, <laughs> this conversation... Well, in terms of, uh, like, what was your... The first the first thing that caught your attention f- f- in terms of performing? Like, did you... Was there a, a moment that you remember where you saw, you saw a show or a performer or something happened that... Yeah, sure. I mean... Turned like, you on to it? Yeah. I have various recollections as a child of uh, experiences of theatre... Where I just thought there's something, there's something beyond just a magical moment in this. There's something very intriguing um, about the kind of the way your attention is held and your your you know that suspension of disbelief going into a space. I remember as a child going to a theatre show as a school group and the set somewhere it might have been Lower Hut Little Theatre, but the set was really um, vivid black and white jagged lines. And I remember it had a really electrifying effect. It just felt exciting to be waiting for something to happen. You know, just the set with pretty ordinary lights on it already set up that expectation. But, yeah, uh, in my later years of high school, I um, I got into some drama and um, acted in a play. 
I remember having an experience of acting in a play, um, playing a guy who was drunk, and of course that was that got fantastic reactions from my school buddies because at that time I was already dabbling with alcohol, and um, it was, you know, seemed to be hilarious to pretend to be drunk, and people seemed to think that I did it so well, you know, perhaps I was practiced. But I also remember that feeling of sheer terror of not being able to remember what line I was needing to remember until I was about to say it. You know, so that sense of stage fright just before going on to do a show was absolutely terrifying. And, um, yeah, I think that pretty much put doubts in my uh, wanting to be an actor as such. But then uh, following that in my first year, uh, well, when I say first year, at the beginning of... Uh, starting at university, I went to... Um, there was a band playing for orientation uh, in the cafeteria at Victoria Uni- University, and I remember looking at this band and going, oh, this band's great, but I've I've already seen this band about three times in the last two weeks, you know. There was, we, were, we were going to a lot of parties, and I looked next to me on the wall was a poster for Mime International happening in the Memorial Theatre. Right then I looked at my watch or whatever and realised it was about to start, so I went to the Memorial Theatre just on just on a whim, you know, and um, sat down and watched this mime show. And um, at the end, the director, Robert Bennett, came out and um, spoke to the audience and said, you know, there's a work- thanks very much, and there's a w- free workshop after this if you want to join in. And I think at that moment I was struck by the fact that he was he did have an English accent, um, so I didn't know in that moment if this company was from England or if, if it was just he that was English. It turned out he was English, a uh, guy living in Wellington, and all these people were locals. But I was struck in that moment that I hadn't thought of this, but it suddenly occurred to me, like, ah, oh, of course, they could be from anywhere because the themes of the show were very universal human experience sort of things, you know, yeah, right. kind of love and mortality and going to the toilet and eating and you know feelings having feelings like being embarrassed or being happy or sad or whatever you know so there was something about the universality of of visual drama that kind of struck me there was something that i felt like that's actually pretty powerful and international you know and i quite like yeah, that yeah yeah so your whole career was Ignited by the fact that you'd seen a band play a bit too much around town. Yeah, yeah, probably. Before before seeing the Mime International show, had there been any thought of or awareness of of theatre and performing outside of kind of just traditional classical? Well, plays, I, I, plays I, on the stage? I think I'd also had a vague kind of fascination with clowns, with kind of traditional clowns. I I do have a memory. Oh, from when I was about four of seeing the Moscow Circus and Popov the Clown um, was, you know, probably the earliest memory I have of seeing a clown with makeup and um, just the way that he mastered the crowd. You Where, know. Who's, who was he? Where's he from? Popov the Clown was, was uh, in the Moscow Circus that came to Wellington. I do remember uh, various times that I'd seen clowns, um, solo clowns, thinking that there was something pretty powerful and... Uh, intriguing about the way that they just held your attention and captivated an audience you know the clown tells us how funny it is that people are actually all obsessed with trying to be cool and fashionable and current and respectable and Mm. you know 
or, or all those kind of facets of human, the things that humans struggle so much with um, on the whole, unless we choose to see the, the farce of that and see beyond it, you know. Mm. So did you, uh, you said they offered a workshop, so you signed up for the workshop straight away? Or? The, I didn't even have to sign up to anything. I, yeah, I turned up at this workshop and, and, and spent maybe an hour and a half learning some real basics of illusionary mime and then uh, my best friend, Steve Aitken, had no relation, who uh, I'd known from school, from high school, we were flatting together and hanging out a lot, and he had also come across Robert Bennett, um, or was aware of him. Uh, Steve's mum worked at the teacher's college where Robert was based, so we were both 18 and uh, had a lot of energy. I remember really early on in a mime class, we used to go rehearse uh, and train with Robert Bennett up at the Wellington Teachers College uh, a couple of times a week and um, before very long at all Robert had us out doing shows around schools I do have this memory of Steve and I kind of running around making up mimes and Robert just standing back staring at us like oh my god <laughs> what have I discovered here um, was it was it much of a scene there like how many people were, were studying with him and, and I actually forget how many people were coming and going specifically in those first classes, but, you know, probably only a handful. But I think what it was, it was an option that Teachers College students took and they didn't... I think the ones that didn't sort of keep it going as an interest probably would have only checked in and out for maybe a month or two. Um, I don't know that detail, though. But from memory, um, a lot of people were there pretty briefly. I met lots of different people, and I have continued to meet lots of people over the years who have briefly learned mine with Robert Bennett. Yeah, um, yeah for sure. So many people recognise the, the name Robert Bennett and Mime International and many, many people who are quite high and well, well, you know, have, have achieved status in media or uh, performing arts or comedy or whatever have, have actually... You know, said that they really early in their careers they started doing something with Robert Bennett. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. And so, like being thrown into actually performing in front of people pretty mm. much straight away. Pretty that, early. Was that pretty like an easy transition? Did that feel right? Or yeah, it was pretty. Um, yeah, I guess it did feel right. Actually, it gave a. I'd never, I'd never preempted that white face illusionary mime was going to be what I started doing. I really had never... You know, it's not like I'd always dreamed of being a mime. Um, but there was something about the accessibility of it. Um, the very fir- I'm pretty sure the very first performance I did with them was at Viard College in Porirua, and we, we got... Tr- the train got delayed, so we're sitting there somewhere, and suddenly we just went... Right, we're going to run out of time. We're going to if we don't, we're going to have to start getting ready on the train because otherwise we're going to turn up to the school and it'll be time to start. So we're basically sitting on a train putting makeup on, and um, I think we probably would have got um, yeah we would have got changed into these black outfits at the school. But you know, so that's a really early experience of um, performing with Mime International. You know, yeah, um, yeah. I, I suppose it felt right. It's like any, to be honest, it was like a it was a moment of discovery. You know, it was something that I didn't realise I was going to get into. Um, and around that time, as I started doing that, I became more and more interested in physical theatre and visual theatre. And you know, 
um, to an extent, I started watching lots of theatre and dance and uh, clowns, although, you know, this is pre-internet, widestream internet, and, and there wasn't a lot in the way of... Um, you know, it was pretty hard to source even a VHS video of, you know, European mime theatre or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so how long how long did you stay in that sort of bubble, working with, with Robert? And well, really not that long. Um, you know, in the big picture, it seems like it was such a short time. So that was early 1984. And in the early 1985, Robert said to myself and another performer with Mime International, uh, Nina Nawalawalo, who's a good friend, and um, he said, now, I've got this opportunity for the two of you if you want to take it, and what it is, is there's a Mime Festival in Moscow, and following that, there's also the opportunity to go and do a little mini tour in Poland, <laughs> we were, you know, I hadn't been out of the country, I hadn't been to Australia, I was uh, 19, um, it was a huge deal. Yeah, it, yeah. it was like, uh, you know, the thought of it was terrifying. Um, I was like a fish out of water, really, with the whole experience. But it was just fantastic. Um, we still occasionally, uh, Nina and I still occasionally will chat about it and kind of almost pinch ourselves and go, God, did that really happen? That was, um, yeah, yeah. you know, 35 years ago now, uh, almost. And... Um, and so we went. So middle of 1985, we went. We went off. We was had it, to. Was it just the two of you? you no, no. So group? we were part of an. A, we were part of a delegation of 25 New Zealand students. We went to this thing called the World, the 12th World Festival of Youth and Students in Moscow. And uh, one of the really surreal things about it was that I'd started get, finding old library books with famous mimes and clowns, and quite a few of them were at this festival. Right. So I was meeting people. Um, I doubt very much that I had those books with me, but um, or any of them. But I was literally meeting some of the world's most famous mimes and clowns um, in person and seeing them on stage. You know, in Moscow. Um, so yeah, the surreality of that was just uh, you know was quite up there, and uh, and also we got to perform our. Uh, so, so yeah, Nina and I were part of a of a twenty five person delegation that that went to this overall big festival. But we, within that, we were we were um, participating in this mime clown festival uh, hosted by Slava Palunin, who's now famous for Slava Snow Show. Yeah, right. And it was an international forum or symposium or whatever it is, of, like a giant convention of um, mimes and clowns from around the world. So, so we got to Nina and I got to perform our our duo mime show, you know, at the Moscow Theatre of Satire um, for about 2,000 people, many of whom were... Many of whom were um, pretty famous. It's a uh, step up from VR College, right? Yeah, it's a little bit of a step up. And it was just so surreal. It was, you know, it was definitely a moment of culture shock. And, um, you know, despite the fact that in many ways... Uh, the majority, a lot of the work that we did, I think, felt like it was stylistically um, behind the times. Um, there was still a massive degree of respect that came, um, because you know, 1985, it was still behind the Iron Curtain, and f- coming from New Zealand, we were pretty much 
we would have been up there among the people who had come the furthest to this international yeah, yeah. festival. You know, it's, it's as you know, New Zealand is about as far away as you can get from anywhere, from anything, anything yeah. in the world. <laughs> and so, one of the one of the things that I strongly remember from that is that people clapped in time instead of scattered applause. Applause. People would very quickly turn. A, a, applause would turn into everyone clapping in time. Wow, really? That's something that we weren't expecting. But that was that was a, a Russian a cultural. I think thing? it was a Europe. Uh, yeah, I suspect it was uh, an East European thing, but I'm not sure wow. exactly the origins of that. But yeah, again, we weren't expecting that. So when it happened, we were kind of in shock. Because yeah, and like from here, that's more of an insult. Is it? Well, everyone like, clapping in time. Well, one, you know, one guy at the back giving you the slow rhythmic hand clap. Yeah, well, that's but, then, but then it also dovetails totally into street theatre. Yeah, <laughs> you know what yeah. we make them do. Yeah, yeah, sure. But so you did the that festival and then the Polish. Yeah, then we toured Poland. So we, so as a delegation of uh, New Zealanders, all twenty five of us, we went to Prague on the way to Moscow, and then we came back to Prague. And uh, it was pretty much party time, um, you know. Sounds like this still the way. Yeah, in, in Prague. And, and then, so uh, having gone from a very organised and supported scenario where we had interpreters and, and um, support people that were offering help with directions and what do we need, and we've been put up in a fantastic hotel in central Moscow called the Berlin Hotel, which was like a few minutes walk from Red Square it really was like a luxury hotel and wow, yeah. second old, oldest hotel in Moscow and I, I suspect we were pretty well looked after you know the New Zealand delegation we went from that experience to Nina and I leaving the rest of the New Zealand delegation and going off on our own on this train from uh, Prague to um, Warsaw or, or Warsaw people call it and um, again I think that was a 22-hour train trip, so that was another first for us. And, of course, people are um, smoking cigarettes everywhere, and um, it's all pretty pretty rustic, pretty lo-fi. And then we we were hosted by this uh, pantomime theatre in northern Poland called the Olsztyn Pantomima Theatre. And, um, yeah, we got picked up by our interpreter, who very, within the first hour of being with us pretty much said do you speak German because she really didn't speak much English right you know so and nobody did uh, in Poland in 1985 it was rare to find anyone who spoke English but you guys didn't speak German we didn't speak German (laughs) either so it was an interesting time at least you were mimes yeah well we were and you think that's an advantage right because it's like playing charades whenever you're in a a moment where you're you know where the language is is an issue yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. So how long was that tour? That was just a week. Just a week. And then yeah. back home? Back to... No, so then from there we made our way across Europe and ended up in London. We stopped in Brussels and Paris and along the way. And Paris was the first place that I actually saw street theatre. Right. I, well, Do you no. Remember who, who it was? Or? Uh, there were a number of people. I mean, I guess, I guess to be honest, I, I'd probably seen something in New Zealand... But mainly the odd guitarist sitting around, eh? Yeah, yeah. And uh, occasionally you'd see a really great one. I think I'd possibly... Yeah, I may... Actually, 
actually probably the first time I ever saw anyone doing street theatre. I is not in Paris. It's in Wellington, outside the Beehive. So now, in what I now know to be an odd place to do it, but um, Dom and Jane, Dom Ferry. I've I spent seven hours editing his interview yesterday. Oh, yesterday. Yeah. Yeah, great. <laughs> great old friend of mine. So Dom and Jane, I can, now I can't remember what they called themselves as clowns, but. I saw them once with, totally with red know. noses. He's just been telling me about he it. He told you yesterday. Yeah. So he, um, they, they were passing clubs and uh, they had red noses and they were probably the first people I'd ever seen uh, juggling clubs. And they were somewhere outside Parliament in Wellington on the street. So, yeah, they were probably the first non-musical people that I'd seen yeah. when, and of course I waited when was that? so that, that that would have been 1984 I'm sure right yep. um, and then also also in early 1984 shortly after starting I, I, I saw a few other performers but not on the street but I saw a guy called Michael Lynch who called himself Mime River he was from the States and he was often in New Zealand, and he—I mean, he—he he was based in Nelson, Nelson eventually. Yeah. I'm not sure if he was then. He's passed away now. Oh, he did. That's yeah, right. I yeah. Know that. no longer with us. But another guy was Ira Seidenstein, who was here and um, was very cool, acrobat, juggler, clown, brilliant clown, and um, very accomplished. And along with them, I—I I started. I used to go up to the Summer City. The Wellington City Council put on the summer program called Summer City in the Dell in the Botanic Gardens, and I met people like Mr. Moon and uh, Chris Hegan, the great McGonagall, and Jonathan Acorn, yeah, and yeah. Um, Shivan the Clown from Germany, yeah. and these kind of these kind of people. But anyway, so this was all around Wellington. Yeah, back, yeah, back yeah, yeah. So this was pr- this would have been prior to going off to Eastern Europe. Yeah. Prior to getting involved with Mime International? No, this was once I was involved so with Mime International. So, for it. Yeah. so I was in that zone of watching things and then immediately going to meet the performers afterwards. And, and I, you know, I say this to performing arts students now, you know, if you want to get on in performing arts, my personal insight is learn to hustle, learn to talk to people. Um, uh, something that I used to do that seems like a foreign concept to people now is just... You, go and meet people and say um, oh I see you're doing this show do you need a hand with your packing you know and people will look at you like what what <laughs> well, um, if you're saying look you know, uh, if, if you need a hand I can give you a hand loading into the theatre or whatever just for a couple of comp tickets and most people will be more than happy to give you a few comps to help them with that stuff, yeah, yeah, you know. So uh, back to Paris when we were when we were East, in, coming across from Eastern Europe to eventually living in London, we stopped in Brussels, which I thought was an amazing city, and then Paris, where, where I'd heard of the uh, the Pompidou Centre, uh, and um, so I went. We we basically went there uh, every day and just hung out and watched artists and. Yeah, I didn't. There was one guy that I met who was a street mime, um, and right at this moment I cannot remember his name. But the first time I met him, he was doing white face illusionary mime, which I really related to. And then when I next saw him a few years later, he had switched over to being more of a man, a man with spectacles and a and sort of some semblance of a suit, you know, and a bit of a dodgy old long grey coat. Yeah, yeah. And that's what that's very much what the Mister Fungus 
transition was as well out of out of illusionary kind of stylized white face white makeup into just being um, every man kind of uh, when I realized that clowns didn't need to use makeup there was in a practical sense you know there was something really appealing about that um, yeah, yeah. the reality of putting uh, having to find a place to put greasy makeup on you know and take it off again and get through all your stuff <laughs> yeah yeah gets all over your belongings um, yeah so did, did you perform in, in Brussels and Paris on your I, not, not on those occasions no and I don't I actually never have I've nearly performed in Paris once I had this experience years later visiting a girlfriend in Paris and I I had some costume and props with me and I I was on the steps of Montmartre Sacré-Cœur this big touristy sort of place and uh, it's odd though I wasn't sure how people worked it I didn't I couldn't figure out where people would do shows but uh, probably at the bottom of the steps would be the obvious thing do you know the place no no I haven't this is really large steps from from memory it's these really large steps so I've spent a cold December day wandering around looking like an early version of Mr Fungus right sort of sort of not really fully committing to getting a crowd or trying to so being like that clown who can't quite decide what he's doing mm-hmm. and um, yeah which I've had that experience in numerous places oh yeah yeah tell me about it yeah sometimes, so, sometimes I'm just dressed as me at the supermarket trying to remember what I'm doing there yeah mm. um, so after Paris, you went to London. Yeah, so then... Col- that when, when, was that still just... Was this all just a trip, or had you... Yeah. Was this where you moved to... So this was all a, all in the space of uh, probably under one month. I'd left... I'd done a year and a half in New Zealand. I'd had these experiences of... Uh, with Mime International of... Um, and meeting lots of these local performers who, by the way, are sort of from everywhere, but had come here to New Zealand. Yeah. Uh, and then on this trip, we'd, we'd gone, you know, Moscow, Poland, and then I'd seen buskers in Paris, sort of street artists that were really out there, and then and then Covent Garden in London. And, and Covent Garden just became the place I gravitated towards, and I would go and hang out there all the time. And gradually, um, I'm you know, within the first few weeks, I kind of was meeting people, going up to performers and saying hello, and... Various people were saying, oh, mate, well, if you're a performer, you should do something. So I kind of... I think there was an audition process where you had to actually prove that you could get a crowd and do something. Yeah. Um, I can't really remember what the audition process was for the outside pitch. Do you remember what you did? I do remember that my very... I do remember my very first street show, and I'm using inverted commas here on the West Piazza, the outside pitch at Covent Garden in London, I just happened to strike the time where I was following the biggest show at the time, which was Chris and Alex. I can't remember what they called themselves, but they did a duo, a giant duo comedy juggling giraffe unicycle epic sort of show where they got the biggest crowd at the time. They had literally, you know, probably a 1,000 people um, you know, or many hundreds uh, watching them and just giant laughs. And I, I went out right after that as a white-faced mime with no real idea of what I was actually going to do. 
um, I had no real... I sort of had some material that wasn't really mine, but some mime international type of material that I could do if I got an audience. But I had no idea how to get an audience or what. Um, I had no idea that... Well, I certainly wasn't confident enough to just use the power of that mime look to actually keep the audience at a distance and, and you you know, master kind of master my own space and command the space so to so to speak and and just let the audience build up if they cared um more i I have a vague memory of going out to where the people were and then look people that were stopping being very confused i made 20p (laughs) in my first show um i remember that someone gave me 20p and i thought wow okay I almost I was anticipating you saying pounds. And yeah, I, and I was just going already going ah oh, bummer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Is uh, better. Twenty pounds for your first show would be okay. It would be fine. Yeah, yeah. Twenty <laughs> p was pretty much someone going there. You go. You're trying to do something. Um, Could you just do it? Go away. You look well. They probably thought you look a bit hungry. Yeah. Um, I used to be skinnier than this, and uh, I probably looked like I needed the money. So who who else was around Covent Garden at that time? Ah, uh, who else was around? Nick Nicholas was someone that I um, made friends with in London. I, so I remember seeing Dave Sheridan watching Nick Nicholas. I knew Dave Sheridan from from New Zealand as a straightjacket escape artist, and he was watching. He was sitting there watching Nick do a straightjacket escape in, on the indoor pitch in the um, what's that called? I can't even think what the indoor pitch at Covent Garden's called. Uh, maybe it's called that. So I thought that's got to be Dave Sheridan. He remembered me um, from New Zealand. That kind of made it real easy to meet Nick. Once I met Nick, Nick's a fantastic, very gregarious human who just um, has no problem just ingratiating himself with all the other humans. So Nick was very generous and... Um, and very, very, and, and also very encouraging. So he encouraged me to do shows, and so in no time at all, I'd met most of the buskers. Yeah. And you know, it's kind of like a snowball effect, right? You start meeting a few, and then you're in with some, and you feel more comfortable. And so there you are. I also have a great memory of Captain Kino um, saying to me, "Are you on next?" Right when I had some great time on the West Piazza, and I was there, I was terrified again. I know that's the third time I've said that in this interview. Um, and I don't think fear is any stranger to <laughs> yeah to any of us. I think fear is a driver, right? It's the moment that we decide that we can deal with it, that we just carry on anyway. It's not the abs- bravery is not the absence of fear, right? It's learning to just carry on despite it. Yeah, so a lot of, a lot of the greatest moments have been you've arrived at them because you've decided to overrule fear. Yeah, but we still acknowledge it's there, right? We're walking a tight a tightrope of kind of some kind of anxiety all the time to play in public. It's kind of against. It's not logical doing what we do, asking people to stop and watch something. It's just not logical. But anyway, I remember Kino saying, uh, "Are you do, are you doing this show? Are you sure? <laughs> are you sure you don't want to let me do it?" And I and I was like, "Well, I was hoping he was going to offer me some money because then that would let me off the hook, right?" <clears throat> um, he said, what do you do? I said, I'm a mime. And he said, okay, so what's the problem? And I said, it's really cold. And he said, we'll just do a mime that you're walking on the sun. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I realised that um, 
maybe I wasn't as good a mime as I, as I uh, you know, I realised that a good mime would just kind of go, yeah, what a fantastic offer. I'll just do that. But anyway, you know, those early, those early days of starting to try and get my head around how to be a, a street performer, you know, that was a challenging time, eh? Kia ora. And, um, uh, yeah, I, a really early influence was I went and saw a mime called Les Bub. And um, he this was, was in London. In London, he, the first the first time I saw the fixed suitcase, he did that so well. And um, also a recollection about Les Bub, who's another great man who inspired me a lot. He he would occasionally turn up at Covent Garden to do shows, and lots of people said to me, "If you think of yourself as a mime, you've got to watch Les Bub work the street." And I think. To be fair, what many of them were actually saying was like, look, go and watch this guy and check out the potential. Check out what it is that, you know, give yourself some some scope for play, some creativity. You know, be, be, be assured that mime works very, very well as a medium in the street. And, uh, you know, just don't do the same stuff as him. <laughs> um, and so one thing that I noticed that whenever Les Bub did come to Covent Garden to play, all the, all the performers would line up and actually sit and watch him. And that was a pretty rare thing for people to even... Com- yeah, they'd mooch around behind the scenes and kind of keep an eye on shows and go, and go look at that, that's cool, eh? But to actually sit and get a place in the audience, to me, really stood out in their behaviour as, as though they really respected yeah. Les Bub. And, and he was a fantastic performer. Um, Pepe Mime was another guy that um, was a huge inspiration to me, the way that he played with the spontaneous and worked in the moment and did a lot of mimicking. And I'd already kind of... And I told him I was already interested in mimicking, and he said, well, I didn't make it up. You know, just don't do what I do. And I managed to um, do half a dozen shows with Pepe, um, which, was an, which was a beautiful experience. It was a, just a great experience to be, because they were giant shows. Yeah. And yeah. to be in that zone of, with a big crowd and, uh, and working at the pace that he worked. And so some of, the, some of the most important things that I learned on the street uh, were actually from people like Nick Nicholas and Pepe Mime. You know, um, one thing that Pepe said to me that still resonates today, and I'd, I say this to any young player or anyone, if you think you're losing your mojo, you know, because we all do that, right? Just remember, it's your time. The audience comes to you. You don't try and go to them. You're not trying to... The moment the audience thinks that you're their little whipping boy, you're gone. It's all over. It's all over. You know what I mean, right? Yeah, yeah. You've got that sense of you're playing with the dynamic of control. And it's it's not a nasty dictatorship kind of thing. It's just more like you show enough confidence to just carry on at your pace. And I've seen this with people who go out and spend, you know, there are people who, for the first five minutes of their show, they do nothing but just set up their props mm. or whatever. Maybe it's more than five minutes. We know people who take a lot longer than that. But there's the, the image that is put across is so confident. If you're out there going, yep, yep, that's cool, and you're not begging people to stop or stay, but you're pretty much going, yeah, yeah, cool, and you ignore the people that leave and the people that do arrive, you go, cool, oh, that's a good spot. You'll get a great view there. It's that self-belief that you set up at yeah, the start yeah. of a street show that's entirely different from a theatrical experience where people buy a ticket and walk in and then they expect you to do the thing that mm. they've already paid for. Um, it's what I 
it's what I find charming and beautiful about street theatre is the, you know, it's a commonly spoken thing, you know, that the way that people ask for money, it's commonly sort of said, you know, we we take a gamble on you and this is just an organic thing and you get to decide whether or not you pay and how much it's worth. But there's also even beyond the money, there's the there's that creative risk that you're going, I'm going to do this thing and I'm banking on the risk that people will stop and engage in it. Yeah. You know, if you've yeah. ever had that experience, I don't. I doubt very much, Kim Potter, that you've ever had an experience of trying to gather a Dash. crowd. Yeah, <laughs> trying to gather a crowd and that not working. Um, no, it's. Uh, I I literally bank on it working. Yeah. <laughs> I love seeing that stuff where people are just in their own personal power, and they exude that sort of confidence that makes people stop and go, "Yep." You know, this is going to be great because look how confident this human is. And, they, you know, they are taking control because to an extent they're kind of going, okay, sit over here, don't sit there. That's You're missing out there. This will be better. Mm. You know, oh, here's a great spot. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, had, I had this really great con- conversation with a friend of mine who I believe you know too who's, a, who's an event producer who, who makes corporate events and... Years ago, I asked him what he thought of street theatre, and he, I had this really interesting conversation where he said, oh, yeah, it's kind of like... It's well known that there's a kind of a deceit going on. That, that there's, we're, we're entering into this kind of game or this contract with a street performer where we all know that they're going to fart around for most of the time until they deem it suitable, enough people um, to actually get on with their shtick and do the thing that we're all waiting for. It's kind of like a well-known thing, you know, except maybe if you're playing in Upper Hut where people are just fascinated that you're there. <coughs> um, uh, and then there's that kind of that gamble and that calculated kind of risk on how long is too long. And it, and, um, mm. and he's going, the problem is, if you've seen enough street performers, you know this, and you start to go... Oh, well, they're just actually dicking around. I walked past them ten minutes ago, and they were still saying that yeah, they're about to start, and they're still they're still saying this. And um, I'm, by the way, I'm not saying this is what everyone does, but this is a well known scenario: building yeah. a crowd. And are you also once once you as a as an audience member, once you have seen enough to be able to spot that, then you start to be able to discern the quality of the dicking around. Mm, that's right. Like, I mean, well, actually, this guy is doing what he has to to get the crowd, but it's pretty good. I mean, I think, as you know, I think when I actually do okay on the street and have a really good time and the right sort of environment to work a crowd up the way I want it to be, it's all about the dicking around. Yeah, most of the, it is. Most, absolutely. Most of it is the dicking around. Mm. And, and in reality, there's a handful of things. There's a... There's a small series of shtick <laughs> yeah. that, that kind of um, feels like that's good to finish the show with. But yeah, for me, it's the the, the spontaneous interaction that you know that that mimicry and and just reacting to what's going on is just so much fun. Yeah, I remember Pete Pete Melnicek told me this, and I think he said at the time that he had been told it by somebody else, but but that it, it resonated with him and it resonated with me that, not that I have changed my show at all, but um, 
that you should only do your show as the last resort. Right. Yeah, I told him that. <laughs> but I didn't mean it to be some kind of wise statement. I was more like, mate, get a job. No, um, yeah, no, that's a that's a beautiful thing. That's not I, true I, at all. Either. No, that's no. not at all. I, but I, I, I absolutely for the record, I absolutely respect you, Pete, um, as a man who's just a master of playing in the moment and just being comfortable about setting. Well, setting up that thing of how comfortable are we? How comfortable am I? How comfortable are you, are you the audience? Are we still waiting? Are we getting on with it? Oh, we were going to get on with it, but now here's a whole other giant world of possibility you know he's a very creative man and and, um, mm. and a great clown I really love that another thing that Pete told me was that I'm not going to ever put up a public video on the internet he said I'll, I'll put them there for people to for an event person to look at privately with a code you know but I'm never going to just publicly put my show up because people will realise I don't do anything right. and he said I don't want newcomers realising how easy it is to get away with not doing anything and you know uh, I kind of get where he's at it's it's not it's not vacuous nothing it's absolutely calculated minimalism and just the, the confidence just to go with whatever needs to happen to you know I would have thought that would be less risky to put up online for public consumption than than most shows most modern street shows because they are the same like mm. you watch you watch one video of it and you know how to do the show yeah there is someone like pete who's so spontaneous mm. and improvisation mm. improvisational like you can see how he's doing it but you've got to go and learn how to do that to, yeah. to do his thing yeah way easier to rip off a tall unicycle show yeah when I first met Pete he was doing a tall unicycle show with a guy called Sham and now everybody's doing it (laughs) yeah um, I've met a number of great performers that say that they used to do the tall unicycle and um, because so many people do tall unicycles they like to play with other things and then occasionally when they when when that's not working and they just need to pay the rent they'll pull the tall unicycle out again my memory, my, my, my small experiences. I think it was actually your unicycle that I <laughs> probably that I learned, um, and we're not even. What's the Wellington unicycle? Yeah, it's the one that we have here. Yeah, it's not even that tall. But uh, the 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 handful of times I've tried riding around a six foot unicycle, I, I found that you know that 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 t that terrifying word comes to mind again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah. So from Covent Garden, how long were you there? How long were you uh, so I was there for, I was there for a couple. I was there for a year uh, in the mid eighties, and then I came home for about a year and a half, and then I went back for two years. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And performing all the time. Performing uh, when you were back here. Performing when I was back here, sure, sure. That's what I. That's what I've always done for a living. Um, so as soon as you started, like that, that's been. Yeah. It was in 87, I came, I was away 85, 86, um, early 87 I was doing an orientation show with Mr Moon and he was calling me Fungus, at that point my name was Fungus and I, I kept calling him Moon during the show and every time he said Fungus I said that's Mr Fungus, that was just a joke between us and that evolved into, at the end of that show uh, I said do you mind if I call myself Mr Fungus and he went oh, I suppose I 
I think I thought I would, and but I suppose I don't. Right. That yeah. sounds like very John David. In a, in a very Mr. Moon kind of way, kind of like, um, ah, there's some part of me that thought I'd be more opposed to it, I suppose, but I suppose it doesn't really matter. Um, and so back and forth a few times? Back and forth a few times, and then I was back here at the end of 89, I... I caught wind of the fact that uh, someone said, uh, I can't remember exactly how I learned this. I mean, I used to read the New Zealand newspaper in London, and I may have read there. I, I heard that two things, that the New Zealand International Festival of the Arts was a thing, which started in 86, and then 88, and then 1990 was going to be the next one, and I'd heard that was worth going for. Um, and that also that 1990 was going to be the sesquicentennial year since our, uh, since we were, um, es- well, established. What that meant was that at, to celebrate sesqui, every small town in New Zealand was going to have a budget to pay for right. entertainment. And not that I think I actually ever did manage to get any kind of sesqui-related gigs, but I, ca- I came back from London at the end of '89. Came back with a return ticket, thinking that I um, would, was going to return to London in April. And, you know, I had, I had a partner in London and, you know, was fully intending to go back. And I came here and a, a couple of things happened. I mean, I fell in love with um, the mother of two of my kids. And um, also I had this realisation, you know, that... I'd already landed in London twice because I have right to a boat in the UK. My mum's from Edinburgh. Right. Twice I'd been able to work there, and well, if you call it work, <laughs> I'd been able to exist there without, you know, needing X bucks in the bank and a return ticket. And so twice I'd turned up in London pretty much on the bones of my bum, you know. And and, um, and now here I was back in New Zealand, going, do I really? I've got a ticket back to London. Do I really want to turn up a third time? where I'm a very small fish in a massive sea, or maybe it's time to actually establish myself here and be like a bigger fish in a smaller sea. Mm. You know, and I use that word. Uh, to be honest, at the age of mid-twenties, I probably thought I was a bit of a big fish. I just started juggling five balls, and as you probably know back then, that made you magical. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Since then, of course, I've met children who can juggle five balls way better than I probably ever will. Um, So, yeah, early 90s, I was back here, and I I started really throwing myself into all kinds of areas. I I did orientation tours every year. That was really good, of the universities. Um, That was a great way to tour the whole country and get around a lot of places in a short amount of time and charge real money for gigs. And, and, um, you know, from that, I... Following on from doing orientation, I <clears throat> also I would just do other trips, like to Auckland in particular. I, there was a, a guy in Auckland, the student union, liked me, and he thought my show, Mr. Fungus Show, was good. It was, there was a lot of stand-up comedy developing in amongst it. Mm-hmm. So I would get these huge shows in the quad at Auckland Uni. And um, and was this all all street, whether I mean booked stuff, but was it street or was some of it more indoor corporate theatre stuff? Or? Those particular shows, there was, there was still an element of spontaneity going on, so if somebody walked past, I'd mimic them. You know, if something happened, I'd react to it. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, I started connecting with people that organised corporate gigs and, um, you know, and, and doing the odd stage thing, doing the odd theatre thing. 
um, festivals. Mm-hmm. I'm doing my own work in schools. So I, as part of the reality of coming back and looking at how do I make a living out of being this you know, freelance solo performer, um, very much had to diversify. Um, you know, and even today, I still don't believe I would make... Well, I definitely would make a living out of stand-up comedy in New Zealand, but I don't think I'd make... I don't think I'd get enough work as any particular one strand of work. So now I do a lot more than uh, just the Mr. Fungus character, and I do stand-up shows, and I do uh, a few other characters, and I do things like murder mysteries Mm. and all those kind of things. And so, um, and that that came as a necessity from just the sort of the uh, economy of scale. Just living in a smaller place where yeah, and all jack of all trades rather than yeah, specialise yeah, and I mean early on I really doubted that I, I sort of saw that people who were jacks of all trades were ma- were really were masters of none but I think if you hang around and and, and keep performing and and div- you know you naturally you diversify and you get a few different tools under your belt I mean I've seen this with you too you know you you, you get to a point where you go okay well I could actually do other stuff. There are other areas of work and art that I want to create, and other yeah. things that I enjoy doing. And you know, th- these days I, I'm very lucky that I get to do quite a diverse range of acting experiences. But yeah, that that diversification thing, you know, it's most people in the performing arts in New Zealand today would absolutely relate to that. You know, that you don't ex- you don't expect to uh, to be able to get enough constant work just to cultivate enough, generate enough work and income at, from one particular creative stream, you know? Yeah, so yeah. various people that we know, there's the, the, the two elements, right? People create a lot of different material, and the other thing that people do, like yourselves more than me probably, is I travel around the country a lot, but you travel around the world, right? And, and I'd love, certainly love to get back to some more of that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, if, you were gonna, if I was going to just stay here in Wellington... And just try and be Mr. Fungus. Well, um, I'm not sure if I'd I'd get thinner. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> but you know, there's something about. Um, I mean, I don't claim to know a great deal about this gig. I, I I think that we're always learning all the time. I think most people that I really admire and respect as artists have that element of humility of kind of going yeah it's not about knowing it's just about experiencing mm-hmm. um it's it's all performing is taking some kind of measured risk um there's always a risk that it won't work um and what works brilliantly in one setting will absolutely bomb in another yeah. um we all have we all know people who you can say their greatest work is utterly genius astounding and when it doesn't work, it just doesn't fire at all. And, and you know, I totally put myself in that camp. You know? yeah, yeah. Also, you know, this is just society anywhere, but, you know, little, little bumblefart New Zealand, sometimes I sort of feel like, you know, it's very apparent that you'll never please everyone. I know that there will be... I meet people occasionally who go, oh, I love what you do. And there will guaranteed there will be people who can't stand anything they've seen me do and um the thing is being new zealand is that they're very unlikely to say that directly to me but i'll hear it from elsewhere <laughs> right right and you know the most important thing to learn from all that is it it actually doesn't matter mm. you know like people that i respect 
have that drive to get past, get beyond it, get beyond the critics. You know, um, Scott Blanks, who's now actually knighted, so I'm not sure if it's Sir Scott, um, he said this really simple statement, something along the lines of, every person that he knows that has actually managed to really succeed as a comedian, as in really be driven and constantly make work, find gigs, be out there doing it and make money, has had to in some ways rise above, it's not even rising above it, but it's just work in spite of that stuff. Stop focusing on being a part of that, stop focusing on needing to be everyone's cup of tea and just actually focus on the work. You know, so I mean, it's just, yeah, it's the same with all artistic endeavour, eh? You can get caught up in the wrong things and you you actually have to focus on the work. Mm. And um, and there's so there's so many elements pulling you to focus on trying to on not the work to try and please the masses or to try and be like be more like the successful act. Well, the perception of success for a start is is we it's very easy to buy into the myth that popularity equals success Mm -hmm. and there are some very very popular things that um, don't appear to require any level of talent or or any kind of real artistic goals or anything you know like there are plenty of popular forms that are more about the celebration of money or the celebration of popularity Mm. I mean, social media has bred a, a really weird monster of, you know, people actually believe the more likes or clicks something have equals, you know, it's kind of like a marketable, quantifiable measure of success. And, um, yeah, people talk about like, you know, oh, my God, I met this famous rap star or whatever, and I think, yeah, well, I've met Slava Palunin, and most people would say, who's that? He's my my rap star. Yeah, who's even that? And, like, well, in the clown world, he's Slava Palunin, and it's not, and, hey, the point of the story is not that, hey, wow, I've met Slava. It's not that at all. But I can genuinely look at, and any of the people that I've mentioned in this interview, I can look at them as people who I believe have passion and drive and work on their gig. And, you know, whatever it is, whether it's street theatre or massive theatre shows or whatever, um, I, I just have I have respect for people who back themselves and believe in, a, in their goal and just pursue it, mm. you know, or whatever they are. Can uh, I would like you to tell us all uh, some uh, just show stories, just craziest moments those those classic stories that we sit around and tell each other sure is there anything that jumps out as uh well so many i mean it's a it's yeah it's why not it's a great thing it's like war stories really isn't it just so many eh? um going to the dublin carnival with a bunch of buskers from london and um everyone counting their coins at the end of the day in their rooms and then leaving their bags of coins in their rooms in the hostel and then going out busking again and coming back the second day and everyone's been ripped off right and it occurred to someone like oh it's probably quite loud sitting there counting coins in a hostel room with really thin walls you know to someone who's looking for something to steal that probably sounds like that's worth waiting for yeah um 
You've played in Dublin, yeah? Yeah. St Stephen's Green. I remember there being, um, playing on gravel and having these kids throwing gravel at me. (laughs) That was epic. I remember a situation, more than once this has happened, where I used to put my case down, doing a Mr Fungus street show, where I'd put my case down in the middle of the space and I'd wander off and, and mimic someone. Who's, who's wandering around, who's walking past or something. And then and then so more than once I've looked back and someone's picked up the case and walked off with it. And one situation, uh, one that comes to mind, I think it was somewhere like Peterborough in England where uh, <clears throat> some kids ran off with this case. And I ran after them. I just abandoned the show and ran after them. And as I'm running down this series of alleyways, further and further away from the public it occurred to me that this little leather case that I'd bought for about 10 quid with a handful of crap in it like a few juggling balls and maybe a few random props that I made comedy from, it actually wasn't worth chasing these kids towards God knows where Their lair. Yeah, for the sake of saving that bag I had this real realisation that like oh this is a really really bad idea running down these alleyways after these kids and so keep going yeah, yeah <laughs> so that was that was one of those life moments where uh, I learned something <clears throat> I mean so many there's so many travel stories as well of course I eh, attached to all this mm. um, because you know it's part and parcel of doing gigs all over the place um, you do it but I th- you do it a bit as a you do it as a bit tell the story Go to Northern Ireland. I do have a like so a. That's, that's a real story, right? That's it's based on a real story, of basically going to do a gig in Northern Ireland, and on my way through the immigration, the little immigration officer asked me to explain everything in my case. So I pretty I had no way of explaining what things were for. So I pretty much found myself in front of him, probably for a matter of a few moments, really demonstrating what different things in the case were. And by demonstrating, it meant doing the comedy bit, like a little plastic poo and throwing it out on the floor and and saying, oh, shit, and then looking at him and saying, people laugh. And he said, do they? And, and you know, and then having juggling balls and <clears throat> him saying, what are they for? Well, the juggling balls, oh, right, what do you use them for? Well, I juggle. Well, you better show me. And so juggling in immigration, you know, and then... So, yeah, I do it now. There is a little stand-up bit that I do of this story. Because the next day, having been very drunk that night and been very hung over the next morning, leaving the airport, there was the same immigration officer and he made me go back through the whole, the same story. And so the way I do it is a bit of stand-up as I, I, I pretty much describe it all the same way. And then the bit that I've added is that he stamped my passport at the end and said, you know, in retrospect, your jokes are much funnier the first time round. And... Um, Crazy gig stories. What about the time that people threw eggs at me at the Nile River Festival? That was epic. Oh, where was, where was not, this Nile was River it? Festival? Was uh... so that was on a, on the west coast, um, kind of, of New Zealand of New Zealand, uh, west coast of the South Island, kind of early nineties, uh, maybe late nineties. Um, what happened was there was um, one year I did it, and I and I and it, it turned into this big kind of. It was a pretty big crowd, a few hundred, you know, and lots of people covered in mud and me being very abusive to them. And that's kind of the energy that I left there with. And then the next year I just arrived with that same energy, um, even though 
the, I think the top twins have been playing to um, a bunch of very appreciative people who were sort of all in their cars and caravans and things because it was raining. And so I was on early that afternoon. I was one of the first acts where it hadn't, wasn't raining. And I, I hit the stage with that real dark, cynical energy and started being really nasty to the kids. And, um, yeah, I said some really inappropriate and unfortunate things. And so as a result, people all got wind of it and said, this is terrible, let's get him. And my next show wasn't for two days. And so that by the time <laughs> I was on two days later, three different people had warned me that people are going to throw eggs at you. And so, yeah, I had this whole build-up. And, and um, the band, the Waratahs, were on after me, so all their gear was on the stage. And uh, while I was on, someone threw something, and I made a, I made a comment of, like, please don't... This, Warata, this gear for the Waratahs is very expensive. It's very, very uncool to throw something at me. Uh, and, you know, risk getting it on their gear. And then I, I made this crazy decision to jump off the stage. One, because this audience I already knew was going to egg me. And two, because it was a really high stage. <laughs> it was one of those rock and roll stages that was kind of easily my head height. And so I jumped <laughs> off that into mud. And then it was, there was this moment where <laughs> it was just this... There was, it was like... It was like <laughs> It was like being a Christian running into the lions, but it was basically um, everyone kind of froze, and then all these people came out and started splattering me with eggs and uh, stuff. <laughs> I, my costume was destroyed, and later that day I was standing on top of a very big cliff at Charleston where the sea comes in, um, thinking, should I throw my costume off there? Should I throw myself off there? What should I do? Should I, what, what, what am I going to do? And the great redeeming thing about that story is that only one week later, I was at another festival in the South Island, at the Marlborough Wine and Food Festival, absolutely rocking it, doing a totally different sort of show, not a, not a stage show, completely not using my voice at all, just doing a, a visual kind of mimicking type show. Mm. But that is uh, the swings and roundabouts mm. of this game. Mm. Mm. So we've relocated to uh, my vehicle parked up the hill because some ladies came in and wanted to talk really loudly in the in admittedly their lobby. Mm. Um, As you said, the swings and roundabouts of this thing that we do, eh? Yeah. Yeah. You're, I mean, you're only as good as your last show. God, and, I'm glad that's not true. I don't believe that. Do you believe that? We're only as good as our last show. You, uh, what if your last show was cancelled? <laughs> then until you have another show, mm. your career is cancelled. But there are things that definitely get in the way of us being good. That Sometimes you can be good, but that's not enough. The show still sucks. And At, quite often it's us, the thing getting in the way. Well, I mean, I think that, I think that often things can prevent you having a great show and unfortunately the perception of the public is that it's your fault. You know, if, if you're relying on someone else's sound system that falters, they don't necessarily think that way, that, like, oh, it's beyond their control. They just go, this show's rubbish. You know, or, or if something else is happening unplanned, unprecedented, um, you know, it's in the way. All these factors that street performers know all about um, that can really absolutely inhibit a great performance. Um, and they are not necessarily thinking that. They just see some guy struggling and think it's rubbish. Mm. Um, 
But we talked about funny gig stories and... I guess, it's just what I, what, I was, what I was meaning, really, was that uh, you finished that horrible gig with bad decisions and a bunch of eggs, and you carried that with you for the whole week until you were back in the same neighbourhood. Yeah. Having well, a killer time. Yeah. Well, another and, another part of the South well, Island. Yeah, but, another part. But, but, yeah, it was a redeeming moment for me to kind of go, ah, oh, phew, thank God, it's not, you know. Yeah, and the, and the weight of that last experience, mm. the last show, was lifted by the more recent Because it's, it's not just like a sense of reputation and what will people think, but it's also what it does to the performer as an individual. You it's, know, re- can, it's your reputation of yourself. You know, you can... I've, uh, many great artists that I've seen and, and that I know lose confidence or it comes and goes or or they just decide at some point, is it worth it, all this nervous energy, you know? is it? Is it there, there are definitely easier ways to make a living um, if you're looking for an easy way to make a, a living, but um, I think it's the challenges of the job that, that give us such a, rif- a rich life, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. One of my favourite moments performing... Um, you know, on the street, I can think of a few times, um, a massive street show in Queenstown once. Um, and I believe this is the only time I've ever done this where I just went up a guy that was talking to his mates and he had kind of, um, track pants on and I just downtrailed him. I just pulled his pants down in front of his, in front of this big crowd. And, um, of course he got the fright of his life. See, he had his back to me talking so I just I made out the crowd knew I was going to go up to him, and I, and he turned around to react, and I just pulled my own trousers down, and then <laughs> and then mimicked like, well, what are you going to do now? This, that's it. We're equal now. So I've never done never done that since, um, because it's not actually a thing that I often do is pull my pants down in front of an audience. But that was a, definitely a big moment. That's a total equaliser. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, you have those amazing moments, sometimes mimicking people where they where they join in, and or do something crazy, and and it just adds so much to the show. Where it's all in the spirit of fun. Occasionally, yeah, you'll get someone that'll just start dancing with you, or or, or freaking out in a theatrical way, like they're actually, you know, they've got a glint in their eye and they're playing along. They 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 they're actually fine and they're having a good time, and they decide to kind of try and upstage the performer and it just gives you so much gold to work with you know if you're doing that spontaneous interaction sort of stuff and there's just endless endless examples of that another uh, from an indoor gig i remember um you may have been there i can't remember doing some pre-show stuff as mr fungus before the world of wearable art that we've both worked on and you know you end up with a giant three and a half thousand people in the room before the show starts and um one year, or there was one gag that I developed that I really enjoyed. That was um, if I just stood in the right place, people coming up the stairs would think I was an usher, mm-hmm. and they'd hand me their tickets, and so I'd hold it up in the air and just guide them through the audience and get a whole row of seats to stand up and get these people walking past them and get right through the entire block of seats and and then just end up back down where we started, and I'd just shrug and hand the tickets back to them. You know, I really enjoyed that. But my favourite thing, I think, once at WOW... This woman had this ridiculously large feather in a hat. She, you know, people dress as though they're, yeah, people dress very elegantly and kind of. It's the biggest night of the year for them. Yeah, it's a, yeah. How can I say that? People dress creatively. And I, it's not that I thought there was anything wrong with it, although I have to say, 
if she was going to keep wearing that hat during the show, there was going to be like the two rows behind her were going to be annoyed about this big feather. But I managed to get my... There was an empty seat behind her. At first, while she was waiting to move up to the seats, I just manoeuvred around behind her and got in the way of the feather. So she had no idea that as she was turning her head, this feather kept hitting me in the face. And a giant bank of people were watching this, and it was getting big laughs. And then I followed her and sat in the seat behind her and just kept doing the same thing. And there was at least, you know, there was at least three to five minutes of just laughter just and people waiting for the next time she moved and then it would hit me in the face again. And the silliness is just the things that we find golden, eh? Mm. You know, I don't know, so many things. Um, Sometimes the things that kids do, you know, that are unexpected, when, when people get on board and start to feel joyful in a show, it's just a new zone a new dimension of fun and playfulness eh mm. yeah when they uh, when they buy into your s- s- ridiculous story yeah when they when you you're basically setting up that like we're out here having fun just yeah. the absurdity and like you know why is it such a big deal to see people joyously having fun you know what what does that say about us today as a society that it really stands out in our mind to see people playing Mm. And I do a lot of workshops. I do a lot of teaching nowadays, and, and it's and it's actually long ago. It struck me that you talk to kids about play, and playing, and playing a game, and most kids immediately think you're talking about devices, and online gamings and computers. And you know, a lot of kids now do not relate the word play or game to physical activity. They relate it to some kind of app. And, you know, that's just an inevitable fact of our society today, but there's something a, a little um, unfortunate, you know. That, mm. and, I, and I think that it's, even though it might be harder to get people to come along to the theatre or to get people to buy into stopping to watch a street show, and people might be going, oh, look, I'm not carrying any cash anyway, what's the point? I'm far too busy, uh, X, Y, Z reasons, you know. People are more distracted than ever these days. They're, 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 they're walking along the road and they're already on their phone as they walk because the you know they don't want to be present. So to actually get people to buy into stopping to watch a show seems harder to do than it used to be. And I think the flip side of that is that the work is more valuable today. If you can if you can get people to stop, if people are going to stop because of the time and place that works, it's even more valuable. It's like. People think that that no one's interested in theatre nowadays, but I think it's just of the way we package it and the way we present it. And the theatre itself is just as viable, if not more viable and more important than ever. Because people, we all need humanity. We need to be reminded that we're human. We need to be brought down from our lofty opinions of ourselves and just brought into the moment and see who we are. We need to we need to see that we're all actually unique, but no one's any more special than anyone else, you know. Mm. We we need to celebrate our humanity. And I think that's with street theatre, I think that's what really appeals to me about it, eh, is that it's it's the the potential is there to be a celebration of ourselves as people. And, you know, my favourite street artists are the people that that actually don't rely on putting anyone down, but they rely they actually rely on building people up. If you're going to use volunteers, they need to be heroes. And and then actually being sincere about the way that, the, that you thank an audience, you know. <clears throat> I've been in endless conversations with people about 
hat lines and, and, and how you finish a show. And we all know, everyone listening to this knows the importance of impressing upon an audience that that we need them to pay for the show and we want them to, you know, to dig deep and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, we can't hassle them into feeling uncomfortable about it. It's not going to be a successful way to go, you know. So at the end of the day, we're, we're indulging in our art and they're indulging us by, by being involved, by watching, by spectating. And we can just hope that we can impress on them that there is inherently a value in that and that, you know, we've given to them and we hope they understand that actually we, we you know, we need financial support. <laughs> you know, um, we're, we're, we're saving for a house, not an ice cream kind of gig, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it seems like it's very easy to sort of say, is it a, is it a thing of the past? Uh, you know, when you talk about how kids play games all the time and are obsessed with devices, but is it, in fact, more important than ever or, ju- you know, just as important as it ever has been as a, as a levelling device, as a way of bringing people down to earth about, you know, about ourselves, you know? So the role of live entertainment and theatre in society, I believe, it's a changing role, but I don't think the importance of it has changed, you know? So uh, that seems like a nice place to wrap it up. Mm. Fergus Aiken, Mr Fungus, from Wellington, New Zealand, this was your life. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, what a a life. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you'd like to see some of Fergus's work, I've included a couple of YouTube links in the notes section of this episode, as well as a link to his website. This podcast is a labor of love, but we do need sponsorship to keep it going. So if you'd like to become a sponsor of the podcast, contact me at magic at buskerhalloffame.com. You can also visit the Busker Hall of Fame website and throw a little love into our online hat by clicking on the donate button. Or become a sustaining supporter of this project at patreon.com forward slash buskerstories. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help grow this resource and generate more content. Thanks in advance for supporting this project and helping keep busking history alive. Music for this podcast came from 357 Lover. Links to both songs are available in the notes section of this episode on the Busker Hall of Fame website. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, and YouTube. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell a friend about it and leave us a review. We really appreciate it. It does make a difference. If you'd like someone to be interviewed or if you feel a certain voice has not been heard, please reach out to me and let me know. We are doing our best to capture interviews and stories with as many performers as we possibly can. So on behalf of myself... Kim Potter, who recorded the interview, and the rest of the team of the Busker Hall of Fame. Remember, if you can't laugh at yourself, find someone else and laugh at them. I'm Magic Ryan, and thanks for listening.